Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. Thank you for tuning in for tonight's program. But here's what Paul said to the Corinthians. For in one spirit we were all baptised into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Now we read that and go, well that's beautiful, that's lovely, that would make a nice fridge magnet. That's just lovely. We put that in greeting cards. It's just so nice. That was radical. Slavery. It's not a palatable subject, nor is it something any of us want to see inflicted on others. But it was a practice referenced frequently in the Bible. While the Apostle Paul was still in prison, he wrote a letter to Philemon on the subject of slaves, and in particular, one slave named Onesimus. In a series of messages focusing on Paul's prison epistles, let's join Dr. Corbett for Paul's prison epistle part three, Philemon. I would like you to turn now in our uh, prison epistles series, and maybe some of you are wondering, I didn't realise there were so many prison epistles. How many epistles did the Apostle Paul write from prison? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, more than we're going to look at tonight, that's the answer, because we're now looking at the third one, and uh, this is Philemon. So if you could turn to Philemon, please. If you've ever read Philemon and wondered, what on earth is that all about? Why is that in the Bible? And we're just going to look at chapter 1 tonight. That's a joke, all right? And it's a joke because there's only one chapter. And it's 25 verses, one chapter. You know, the New Testament is arranged uh, after the four Gospels. It's arranged from basically biggest epistles down to smallest epistles. And it's arranged churches, then individuals. And so you find Philemon uh, comes after Titus and Titus comes after First and Second Timothy. So they're the individuals to whom it, it is written. So just before James. So it's tucked in there. So what we're going to look at in this epistle, 25 verses of Paul, I think is a really important issue. And I want to show you why I think it's an important issue. One of the things that I mentioned in this morning's message was Christianity has done five things in shaping the Western world. And many people are beginning to write this now. And a Professor Niall Ferguson from Harvard, who's not a Christian, wanted to look at why is it that the Western world, that's America, the former British Empire, um, why is it that the Western world has become far more prosperous, far more successful, far more technologically advanced than the two-thirds world? Why is that? And Noel Ferguson undertook a, a pretty major study, economics professor, and he found that there was a number of factors of which those factors didn't include, didn't include things like luck. It didn't include that. You might think, well, maybe the West just got lucky. It didn't include natural resources because some parts of the Western world don't have many natural resources. And he used as a case study North America and South America. Now, uh, Mr. Harris, Mr. and Mrs. Harris, you served in which part of South America? Venezuela and Chile. Okay, so I've never been there, but those, I'm assuming those countries have lots of natural resources. Absolutely. Why aren't they incredibly wealthy? Yeah. And this is the question Niall Ferguson asked. 
it's not just Venezuela and Chile, but Brazil, Argentina, they have, they have precious metals, they have oil reserves, they have, but yet they're largely, compared to North America, impoverished. And this confused the professor of, the Harvard professor of economics. Why is, this, isn't, this doesn't make sense. And you can't say it's, you know, um, just equatorial countries because North America and South America, they, you know, they, they equal distance away, north and south from the equator. And so when he looked at it, he concluded that there were six things. But the overarching thing was that the West was built on Christian principles. And he actually said, it pains me to say it. And it pained him to say it because what he found was these Christian principles included the Protestant work ethic. So South America is largely Roman Catholic. Roman Catholics aren't... Church for them is different than how we see church. And people aren't as committed. And for them, it's just, it's just culture. And it's not very competitive. So... Whereas North America is largely Protestant, and Protestants are very competitive. And that competitiveness in Protestant Christianity translated into every sphere of culture, including business. And the Protestant work ethic said this, I work to glorify God. The Roman Catholic concept of work didn't quite include that. The Roman Catholic concept of work was... I want to be saved, therefore I'll get the priest to do it. So it's a quite a different mentality about that. So when we as Christians come to church and we bring our families, we are actually enculturating our children in what some atheists are now recognising as a very, very positive contribution to society. Now I don't want to just make a head case for the fact that Church is really important, Christianity is really important, but I did feel the necessity to say it this morning because I'm hearing in our state parliament that Christians are repressive. I'm hearing it in internationally, I'm seeing it on Facebook, I'm seeing it everywhere. But you Christians are repressing people and hindering people when the facts actually say exactly the opposite. One major atheist criticism of Christianity and the Bible that you'll find all over YouTube is this. The Bible can't be true. The God of the Bible can't be real because the God of the Bible endorses slavery. Anyone ever heard that argument? I'm seeing people nodding their heads. It actually surprises me as an argument. And I heard someone who's a very prominent apologist who takes talkback calls. He had a talk, a very articulate talkback caller who described himself as a former Christian minister who was confronted with this criticism and on the basis of this criticism, which he could not deny, he renounced his Christianity. Not just as a Christian minister, his Christianity. And he rang this apologist, Christian apologist on talkback radio, and presented him with how could you promote a good, loving, beneficent, which means always good, God, who endorses human trafficking and slavery. And I, to my horror, 
heard this world-renowned apologist stumble and fumble and drop the ball. And he couldn't answer this guy. And I was staggered, little me, just staggered at the lack of articulation to just be able to nail this and just respond to it. And I actually think as we look at Philemon, we're going to see something that I think is a powerful truth about the Christian response to slavery. I could talk about the topic of slavery. I guess I want to make a couple of statements about it from the Old Testament. But I just want to put it out there. If you haven't heard it, you probably will hear it. That atheists will use the Bible's seemingly endorsement of slavery to say, how could your God possibly endorse that? Therefore, your God can't be the God that you're talking about being a kind, good God because no God would allow someone to be sold and bought like a piece of cattle. All right, so that's the argument. So what we need to understand firstly is that the Old Testament regulated the practice of, and I'm going to call it slavery, and I'm not sure that's the best word for it, but at the moment I'll just use that word. Slavery as a way for someone to pay a debt. And it actually describes it in the Old Testament. If a brother becomes poor, a brother like a Hebrew in Israel, if a brother becomes poor, he can sell himself to pay his debt. You'll see that in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and so on. Now, there was two types of slavery in the Old Testament. And I hope in my description that I've just given you, which is what the Old Testament describes, if someone becomes poor, cannot pay their debts, instead of you know, you know, trying to get blood out of a stone, they will say, look, I can't pay you, therefore I will sell myself to you as a slave to pay off my debt. Some people prefer to call that indentured servitude. Indentured in the old days, if you wanted to become a tradesman, you indentured yourself to the master, the master being the master blacksmith, the master bricklayer, the master whatever, you signed a contract that said, I will serve you for X number of years, five years, six years, whatever it is. And the expectation was that over that time, the master craftsman would teach you how to become a master craftsman. Your part of the deal was, you'll do whatever he says. You'll sweep the floors, you'll do whatever. Today, we don't call that indentured servitude. We call that an apprenticeship. That's the, the concept. That's what indentured means. So it says in Exodus 21 verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. He owes you nothing. Debt's cancelled. Six years. Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? That's one category of slavery. So you can only have a Hebrew slave for six years. That's your brother. You can only, you know, if your brother comes to you and says, I can't pay my debts, can I work it off? Yes, you can if you work 12 years. Yeah, but Moses said six. Yeah, okay then. Uh, Jeremiah later, by the way, later condemns the Hebrews for ignoring that command, that Exodus uh, 21 verse 2. They ignored it. They actually enslaved their, their fellow Hebrews for much longer. All right, so there's another type of slavery, and that's not a Hebrew slave, that's a foreign slave. So the Old Testament regulated the way that foreign slaves 
were to be treated by God's people. They were to be treated with kindness. They were to be given human dignity. They were to be given certain rights. Now, these foreign slaves were often the result of military conquest, where perhaps, say, the Amalekites had come in and attacked and Israel had fought back and taken prisoners, and those prisoners become slaves. Now, you think about it. In that day and age, what's the alternative? Death. That's right. And so in one sense, we're, we're thinking, oh, that's pretty cruel. God's saying, take them as slaves to, you know, at one point there was, um, they were to hew wood and, and bear water, it says. But the alternative is, in that day and age, kill them. So I'm, please, I'm not advocating slavery, and I don't think you'll find many Christians that would advocate slavery, but I do want to point out this distinction between how the Old Testament described what we call slavery. There are certain rights that even a foreign, a foreigner received under Hebrew law about being a slave. And one of them is this amazing verse, which says, You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. Now I want you to notice that. Deuteronomy 23.15, You shall not give up to his master, a slave who has escaped from his master to you. And that's especially important right now as we look at Philemon. So when we come into the New Testament, so there's the Old Testament, that's essentially what it says. You, a slave can only be kept for six years if they're a foreign slave, possibly through conquest of war, uh, then that would be longer. There would be other instances where perhaps Sometimes a woman could be taken, a young woman could be taken as a prisoner and given, it says, given to your son as a bride. Uh, not the ideal courtship, I'm going to have to say, especially, but that's what it says. And, and she is to be given the rights of a wife, not just a slave. So there's a, a big picture here. And yes, it says, particularly, well, with a men and women were treated differently, but with a man, that man could be bought and sold. Only a foreigner, not a Hebrew, only a foreigner. Now, still sounds quite foreign to our culture, but it wouldn't have been foreign to the culture of the day in which Christ and his disciples, his apostles, lived. Because that was, their, that was just part and parcel with their culture. Slaves built the Roman Empire. They contributed to the building of roads. They contributed to the building of buildings. Their massive infrastructure that Rome had was largely built on the back of slaves. So that was, that was everywhere. When Paul was preaching, when the apostles were preaching, slavery was everywhere. So what I want to show you is that when the gospel began to penetrate, so after that first Easter and the gospel went, began to go out around the world, the gospel began to penetrate every strata of society. We read that there were people who came to Christ in Caesar's palace. So these were the highest officials in the empire came to Christ. But we also read that there were slaves who came to Christ as well. So we have scriptures early on 
which begin to say this, and I want you to think no one thought twice about people owning slaves at all. It was, there was no challenge to it. It was so embedded in the culture. Many Christians, many Gentile Christians who had come to Christ already had slaves. So this was just part and parcel. But here's what Paul said to the Corinthians. For in one spirit we were all baptised into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Now we read that and go, well, that's beautiful, that's lovely. That would make a nice fridge magnet. That's just lovely. We put that in greeting cards. It's just so nice. That was radical. That no one talked like that. No one said the lowest slave is equal to the highest official. No, there was no other worldview that thought that except Christianity, except the gospel. And Paul puts it there. And in case you didn't get it, he writes in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? Is he saying there's no difference between... No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying we all are equal in our access to God. It's not that men go first. It's not that women go first. It's not that white people go first. It's not that English speakers go first. We all have equal access. Whether you're a slave or a citizen of the empire, you stand equal before God. This was radical. (laughs) No one was talking like this. Slaves were property. Slaves, you could do whatever you wanted to slaves. And they had no rights in that day. So this idea began to transform people. Then we read... Paul writing to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 5, bond servants, and we'll come back to that word in a moment, it's the Greek word doulos. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. What? This is incredible. Paul's saying, don't moan and whinge and serve reluctantly serve your master even if they are hard and difficult serve them as if you would they were Christ this is radical stuff now that word bond servant that's not just a slave a slave was someone who may have been caught in conquest they may have been born to slave parents and they were automatically a slave not owned by their parents but owned by the master of their parents and that child could be saved that's a slave but a bond servant is described in the old testament as someone who says uh, so if i was tom's slave i could say tom i've done my six years but gee i love you you're a great guy i think i want to serve you for the rest of my life and tom would go let me go and get the all and all is it's like a metal knitting needle with a handle on the end of it. And what's, he, what's Tom going to do with that awl? He's going to take your ear. He's <laughs> going, let's go and find a door, shall we? And he would drive that awl through one of his doors 
as a representation, a symbolism of you are pinning yourself to my household forever. And my commitment to you is I'm going to treat you somewhere in between a servant and a son. Somewhere in between. You're, a, you're now a bond servant. That's that word. Bond servant. Do it out of delight and joy. That's the bond servant's commitment. By the way, Paul describes himself as a bond servant of Christ. And we are encouraged to be bond servants of Christ. To willingly say, I want to serve you as a slave forever. That's our commitment to Christ. All right. So in Ephesians, in that Ephesians passage, Paul not only speaks to slaves, bond servants, but he speaks to masters, employers, we might refer to them today, to look after your employers. This was radical, radical. Slaves didn't have any rights. You could treat them however you wanted. But Paul's saying, no, you can't. If you're a Christian, you treat that person as a brother, as a sister, with respect. You look after them. So this is what Christianity began to do. And now we come to Philemon. And it's one of the last epistles that Paul wrote. In this epistle, we're going to read every verse. So if you haven't read a book of the Bible today, you're going to get bragging rights in a moment because we're all going to read this together, all 25 verses, and you'll be able to put on Facebook tonight. Today I read a book of the Bible from cover to cover. 25 verses, we'll get there. So let's see how Paul's thinking began to shift. Well, not so much shift, but the gospel began, people began to realise, hang on a minute, if we're equal, then the whole concept of slavery is not right. People began to think that way. We, of course, that thought has, has blossomed and it's full-blown now. But Paul lists slave trading in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 10, we'll look at it in a minute, as, as one of the most heinous things one person can do to another. Heinous means evil and wrong. Just really, really wrong to do it. So look at the categories that Paul puts enslavers or uh, older translations have slave traders in. It says this, he's going on that the law was really designed for people whose hearts are so hard they don't get what they're doing is wrong and the law is meant to show these people that they're wrong and who are these people we're talking about? The sexually immoral, people who have sex outside or beyond marriage. Men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. It's the enslavers bit that I want to draw your attention to. Buying and selling another human being is considered to be a grossly immoral act. It's a sin on steroids to do it, which is why prostitution is wrong, because prostitution is essentially slavery. So this is the thought is beginning to blossom. The thought is happening because 1 Timothy was one of the last letters Paul wrote. 2 Timothy was the last letter he wrote. And now we come to Philemon. And the story goes like this. Philemon lives in Colossae. Epaphras was his pastor, essentially. And he came, Epaphras, came to the aid 
of the Apostle Paul when he was imprisoned in Caesarea. Now we talked about that in our last session where Caesarea was the capital of the Romans in Palestine. And Paul is imprisoned there under charges of, well, actually no one knows what the charges are. And this must have been terribly frustrating. And we saw from Paul's letter, his epistle to the Colossians, that despite his predicament where he'd been imprisoned at least two, possibly three years without charge, and no sign of being released, he actually tells the Colossians, I'm thrilled to hear the positive reports of how you're going. I rejoice with you and I want you to rejoice as well. And you think, this is a guy who's been in prison for three years? Where he says, you know, let's pray that the gospel continues to be effective. And I confess to you, that would probably not be my prayer points if I'd been in prison for three years on no charges. <laughs> I would be asking you to pray for my circumstances to change. But Paul doesn't, not at all. And when that letter went out, there was another little letter that went out as well to Colossae because this is where Philemon or Philemon lived in Colossae. And so with that in mind, when Paul had preached in that part of the world, this slave called Onesimus heard the gospel. Maybe he heard the gospel in Philemon's house. Great possibility that happened. And Onesimus had a life-changing moment and something happened where maybe he heard there is no more Jew or Greek, slave or free, you're all one in Christ. And maybe he thought, I've given my life to Christ, therefore I am free. Maybe. We don't know the context of that bit. But we know this. He left Colossae. He ran away and he found Paul. And he said, I don't want to be Philemon's slave anymore. I want to serve you. And I want to serve you so the gospel can advance. What would you do if you were Paul? It's an irrelevant question because this is what Paul did. He really didn't care what we would do. This is what he did. So let's have a look at what we've got here. As we now consider that Onesimus has run away. And he's now come to the Apostle Paul. We're in Philemon chapter 1. In verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. And verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Bang, there it is. There's a biblical book. We've knocked it off. What do we see in this verse or in this passage? We see this, that Paul makes this point. Now that he's in Christ, he's no longer just a slave. He's a brother. And this is one of the the closing statements we read about how the gospel affects the way we interact with each other across class distinctions of slave or free we could track this through history and we could look at some sad patches but again as I mentioned in my previous message that some people have misrepresented Christianity and done some really bad things some horrible things 
But Christianity should never be judged by our actions, although it is. It should be judged by our founder and the book he's given us. Judged by that. And when we do that, we see that Jesus taught that all people are equal before God, no matter what race, what nationality, what skin colour, what gender. All people are equal. And as the early Christians began to unpack that, the first thing they unpacked was Jew-Gentile. We read that in Acts 15. And they, they realised, oh my goodness, God doesn't think we're anything special to anyone else. He thinks everyone has equal access. And then, of course, we begin to see how Luke highlights through uh, his Gospel of Luke and Acts that we see the early church reached out to the marginalised women, children and slaves. And so here we have the gospel setting up how this would unfold even after scripture closed and we could look at two people on each side of the Atlantic within 100 years of each other. Let me give you the first case. Two people who loved Christ who loved the Bible, who read Philemon and said, if that be the case, then we have no rights, no rights at all to have any slaves today. That's all we have time for tonight, but you can order the full-length version of this presentation on CD, audio or premium download by going to the website findingtruthmatters.org and selecting Paul's Prison Epistle Part 3 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, Paul spoke out against the slave trade as being wrong and immoral. His care for Onesimus spoke loudly of his consideration for the value of human life. More from Dr Corbett next week. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.